Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and this week we will be talking about voting, voting, voting. We had more primaries. What did we learn from the primaries in four states this past Tuesday night? We had Arkansas, Georgia, Kentucky, and Texas, a nice slice of the South there. Plus, House Speaker Paul Ryan learns that being a lame duck makes a tough job even tougher. He's dealing with a rest of conference on all sides right now over immigration especially, but also other issues. We'll talk through that with one of our congressional experts. A reminder to our listeners to subscribe to the Nerdcast, rate us, and write a review. And stay tuned for the end of the show for a contribution from one of the Nerdcast's biggest fans. One more note before we begin, we are taping this a little bit before noon Eastern on Thursday, May 24th, so it is all up to date as of then. Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome our guests, two members of Politico's crack campaign staff. We have politics reporter Daniel Strauss, our governor's expert. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Scott. And we have Steve Shepard, our polling expert. And But you're, you're involved in everything these days, right, Steve? Uh, a little bit of everything, sure. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into our first data point uh, coming out of these big primaries on Tuesday. Zero. Data point is zero. That's how many African-American women have ever been elected governor in United States history. Could Georgia be the state to change that? We're going to jump into that in a second, but how about a little lightning round to start? Big picture takeaway from this week. Steve, what do you got? What was the thing that most caught your eye in this week's primaries? You know, because we're dealing with these four southern states, most of the the competitive primaries were on the Democratic side where Republicans, either they, they have incumbents. So for me, it's the continued success of female can- women candidates in Democratic primaries. Uh, we're about to talk about, about Stacey Abrams in Georgia, but uh, you know, if you look across the House landscape, too, Amy McGrath in Kentucky, two of the three uh, uh, Texas battleground districts, uh, those will have women on the ballot on the Democratic side. Uh, as Democrats, as, as, as the Democratic coalition relies more and more on women, on, on, on voters, uh, we're seeing them rely more and more on women candidates uh, this fall. That's a really good point. What about you, Daniel? What caught your eye most on Tuesday night? I'm very interested in the ongoing pattern of establishment aligned candidates and more uh, less fire breathing candidates winning the nomination. I think Stacey Abrams was sort of a, a, a marker on this in that she had a lot of support among top Democrats who are aligned with the establishment and as well as groups like Our Revolution and Bernie Sanders. But we what we saw uh, throughout Tuesday with um, – uh, Abrams and elsewhere is that if you're uh, aligned with the establishment wing, you're probably going to do better than... It's still a powerful tool. Right. You know, speaking of which, and we'll talk more about Abrams in a second, but I thought it was interesting. Like Abrams is getting a lot of attention and deservedly so for being, you know, potentially being the first black female governor now that she's gotten the nomination. Uh, but the the campaign was actually like 
pretty conventional, right? Like a lot of the the ads, you know, they were about policies that were liberal but not super liberal. They were, you know, there was a big TV push from her allies, uh, even a little less from the campaign, but from her allies, and not so much talk about the historic nature of her candidacy. Yeah. I mean, what was different about her campaign was how much was her her thesis that investing early in field staff was the way to go. Going door to door, people to people relationships. Yeah, that's a good point. Let's talk about that more in a second. The thing that caught my eye most on Tuesday night, I want to say, you know, we've talked about uh, Democrats in the last two uh, uh, little lightning round bits here. I want to talk about Republicans, and specifically in Texas, there were, I think, five Republican uh, open seats, uh, pretty safe seats. Maybe one or two could end up with a challenge, but pretty safe seats, where you had longtime Republican House incumbents retiring. And in four of those five seats, they were replaced by uh, uh, candidates endorsed by the Club for Growth. This is, uh, you know, a, a... uh, right-wing uh, conservative group, um, very hardline on spending, uh, you know, that pushes leadership from the right a lot of the time, that contribute has contributed to the growth of the Freedom Caucus and other groups like that um, over the last few years. And so it's interesting to me that you saw, in some cases, you know, committee chairs uh, leaving Congress, maybe not always allies of leadership, but always, you know, talking to leadership and stuff like that, and replaced with potentially people in more of a Ted Cruz mold, including Cruz's former chief of staff. The one exception uh, was Bunny Pounds in the 5th District, who was endorsed by Vice President Mike Pence and lost to a, a state rep uh, there, which I just thought was fascinating. But anyway, that's it for the lightning round. That was the thing that caught my eye most on uh, Tuesday night. But let's let's dig a little bit more into Georgia. Uh, Daniel, you've been writing about this race. You know what? What did we learn on Tuesday night from Abrams? Not just a victory, but a smashing victory—a three-to-one victory over the her fellow Stacey, Stacey Evans. Right. Her liabilities as a candidate, sort of a darling of the National Party, uh, uh, an African American woman in a a very conservative state that hasn't always been friendly to African Americans. Uh, look, none of those things held her back, and it didn't hold her back against her rival, Stacey Evans, who. I I mean, Republicans had told me they thought would be a very serious challenge to Abrams, even with all the star power she had. So, look, I mean, you know, she won handily. Yeah. I mean, as handily as we've seen anywhere so far this this, uh, primary season. Steve? You know, Daniel mentioned earlier uh, the sort of. Uh, idea of of Abrams' candidacy and and the strategy behind her campaign and and what strikes me now is this everything is setting up as perfectly as possible for her. You have a positive environment for Democrats nationally. She has a two month head start on her Republican opponent because the Republican primary is going to a runoff in July, so she's going to get a head start on her campaign. Um, you have a, a primary victory. Uh, I read that it was the the fourth greatest margin of victory in a Democratic primary for governor in Georgia since the late 1800s, uh, thanks to the University of Minnesota Smart Politics for that little tidbit last night. Uh, so she has already united the party in a lot of ways because she, her, she won so overwhelmingly. This is all setting up now, as we sit here right before Memorial Day, uh, it's, she's unlikely to win. I think we can all agree on that at this point. Uh, the Republican candidate, who, whomever it will be, uh, would still be would still go in as the favorite right now. But if this is going to work, the idea that she can expand the electorate, the idea that she can tap into either either especially in Georgia, which where a third of the roughly a third of the population is African American, 
She can tap into African-Americans who are not registered to vote or who do not vote in midterm elections. If she can motivate them and, and, and tap into that, this seems like the perfect storm for that to work. Yeah, I mean, look, Steve. Steve points out this uh, th- that this is really the best scenario for her. There's a runoff on the Republican side, and the difference between the amount of votes in the Democratic primary and the Republican primary was less than 60,000 60, votes, which really surprised me. I thought there would be way more enthusiasm, way more participation on the Republican side than the Democratic side. It always makes me nervous trying to forecast from from primary uh, turnout, but. But part of the point here, right, is that Democrats have been looking at Georgia for a long time as a state where it's like, hey, you know, these population trends could work in our favor. At some point, they've been saying, hey, maybe it's this year for a while now. But yeah, it used to be Texas. Now it's Georgia. <laughs> well, but both states, in all fairness, both states got closer in 2016 than they were in 2012. You Despite know, Democrats doing worse yeah. nationwide. Donald yeah. Trump only won Georgia by five points. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's a smaller margin of victory than he won Ohio or Iowa, which are other uh, gubernatorial battlegrounds this year. So look, now there were a lot of people who were used to voting Republicans for Republicans who've actually voted for Hillary Clinton. Where do they end up in the governor's race? Is Stacey Abrams the kind of candidate that can appeal to them? I think that that is a big question mark. But testing her theory of the case here, which is I can expand the electorate beyond what we usually see in a midterm election. You know, we Scott and I crunched the numbers uh, uh, the other night. White voters outpaced African-American voters in Georgia in the midterm elections in 2014. Usually those turnout rates in presidential years are a lot closer. If she can expand the electorate and bring more of those voters out, you know, that that's that's the theory that will be tested. It's hardly a slam dunk. I'm with you, though. Yeah, no, but it'll be it'll be interesting to watch. What about let's turn to the House races uh, this past week. There were a, a few uh, battleground districts scattered around the country where Democrats picked nominees. And we mentioned uh, uh, party favorites making their way uh, through in three Texas districts. We've got the Houston suburbs, the Dallas suburbs, and the San Antonio suburbs stretching way out into <laughs> West Texas into taking in a bunch of rural counties. But we also had Kentucky. And I think that was the most interesting result potentially of Tuesday night. Steve, tell us a little bit more about this. You had We had uh, Amy McGrath, a Marine veteran and one, one of the first female fighter pilots in, in the country, uh, who kind of went viral in, in 2017 and rode that uh, and, and her amazing life story into, uh, into this potential battleground race, depending on how, how she can do from here. Yeah. Campaign junkies uh, listening to this at home may know the name Mark Putnam. He's a Democratic ad maker. You said she went viral. He made this uh, really cool video to announce her candidacy. When I was 12 years old, I knew exactly what I wanted to do when I grew up. I wanted to fly fighter jets and land on aircraft carriers because that's the toughest flying you can do. In which she talked about the fact that her congressman at the time when she was growing up, Jim Bunning, who would later go on to be a U.S. senator, said that, well, we don't let women fight in combat. We don't let women become fighter pilots. Mitch McConnell wouldn't let, would, you know, told her in high school, well, you can't do this. And, and she told this story and then, and then talked about how she overcame it. She raised a ton of money to, to seed her campaign there. Um, but Democrats back last year, they were nervous about her. Uh, this is Andy Barr. This is a Lexington, Kentucky area district. It, it leans pretty heavily Republican. Double digits Republican. Yeah, Trump won it by about 15 points uh, in 2016. But it's it's a place where they see an opportunity, college town. Uh, anyway, 
They recruited the sitting mayor of Lexington, Jim Gray, who had run a pretty credible campaign against Rand Paul for Senate in 2016. He carried the district over Paul by a few points. He did. Uh, they, they And they looked at that number and said, well, he has some appeal there in this district. We well, Let's recruit him into the race. What quickly became apparent, though, uh, earlier this year was that this was going to be a very competitive election. So when Democrats were rolling out, the, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has its red to blue list. These are its top recruits in Republican seats. They left Jim Gray's name off that list earlier this year because they could see that Amy McGrath had parlayed that uh, early success, that early momentum into money, into television ads that then got her name out there, told a compelling story. And you know, they now look going into Election Day here, even though Jim Gray was the, the the party favorite when this whole thing started, they kind of could have gone either way if you talk to them uh, with with whom they ended up with. So even though this is the one place where the party fit, you mentioned Texas, where the party favorites swept those three battleground districts. This is the one place where the party favorite didn't. Uh, by the end of this primary, and this is the point a lot of a lot of people make about primaries in both parties, primaries are tests for candidates. Usually the better candidate wins the primary. So you might get worried that, oh, you know, we're going to end up with an inferior candidate. But nine times out of 10, the, the candidate that performs best in the campaign is the one that emerges. And, and, and I think Democrats feel pretty good about Amy McGrath right now. Certainly a lot better than if you told them, say, in October or November that she was going to be the nominee. This is my new mission, to take on a Congress full of career politicians who treat the people of Kentucky like they're disposable. Some are telling me a Democrat can't win that battle in Kentucky, that we can't take back our country for my kids and yours. We'll see about that. I just think it's interesting looking at her and some other candidates around the country at how, I mean, we're hearing a lot more about about people kind of fighting and pushing back against, oh, you know, the, the party picking nominees or picking sides in primaries and stuff like that this year. But um, I think part of the reason we're hearing more about it is because it is more possible than ever to credibly fight against it because you have stuff like online fundraising that, you you know, a, a story can go viral and just infuse a campaign with, and, you know, money isn't everything, but you need some money to run a credible campaign, right? You need to be able to hire staff and send mail and make ads, wh- whatever else, you know. And so y- you you get online fundraising, you have, you know, uh, just this this proliferation of, of ways in which it's possible to, uh, to still win a primary, even if you're not the party favorite. And Amy McGrath kind of caught those in a bottle and combined them with a really epic life story and and rode that to a win. You know, we've talked a lot tonight about how good of a night it was for d- women in Democratic politics, Scott. But like it was also a really good night for Congressman Seth Moulton, who backed McGrath uh, contra the DCCC. And he has sort of built this or been trying to build this shadow infrastructure, his own sort of network of candidates. Seth Moulton, the congressman from Massachusetts, a Marine veteran before he came to Congress, right? And he's been going around the country uh, raising a fair bit of money for for veterans in all sorts of different Democratic primaries, whether or not they're backed by the DCCC. A fair fair few of them are, but some of them aren't. Um, and we saw another one win a primary on, on Tuesday in Gina Ortiz-Jones in Texas 23rd District. So, all right, we've now had primaries in, you know, a dozen states or so uh, for, for a couple months. Uh, Steve, what's your big takeaway so far? Uh, we talked about what what struck us on Tuesday. What's you know what's the big thing that struck you about just the overall primary season so far? 
Well, I mentioned earlier the success of women candidates in Democratic primaries. I think we're seeing where the energy is on the Democratic side now that they're out of out of power. Uh, now that Donald Trump is president and 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 all the unique uh, dynamics that that brings to Democratic. Uh, party politics. And we saw a similar thing happen if we were to go back eight years to the 2010 midterms and Republican primaries early on. You saw that where the energy was on the Republican Party. And that's, that's a really good point. And that is what those that was reflected in, in the candidates that emerged from a lot of those primaries. And it was reflected in the Congress that those candidates were part of for the next I mean, eight years now. Right? Absolutely. And, and if you look at the Republican wave in 2010 and the people who came in in 2011, uh, if, that, that, that John Boehner worked so desperately to corral uh, uh, during the years of his speakership, that, that pr- uh, presented a lot of headaches for him. I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen on the Democratic side here because I think the dynamics are totally different. But where is the energy coming from? It, it seems to be coming more from women. And that is going to be something to watch as we move into California and up. Uh, the uh, you know half dozen other states that that have primaries uh, in a, as we sit here now a week and a half. That's a great point, Daniel. What about you? Look, I think I think going forward, one thing we're going to have to pay attention to is just is is like you said, Scott, the the changing arguments of both the Democratic and Republican electorates. I think the fact that the about pub- how to how to win, how yeah, to attract how to win, them, yeah. right? I mean, I think the fact, like you said, that Club for Growth had such a good night points to that Republicans want candidates who can who are more focused on fiscal policy and less focused on social issues. And for Democrats, I mean they think women can win in the South. I, we, we've been hammering this point home, but McGrath, Lupe Valdez in Texas, the Democratic nominee there against te- uh, Greg Abbott and Abrams. I mean, uh, if you are a woman candidate in uh, another state around the country right now, you're feeling pretty good. I, I will say last note before uh, I take us out. Um, Abrams was the beneficiary of both a Hillary Clinton endorsement and a Bernie Sanders endorsement, which uh, neither of them came though, well, to neither, Georgia. Neither of them came, but, but I'll just say like not. <laughs> Everything in Democratic politics is like Clinton versus Sanders right now. In fact, quite a lot isn't. But I thought that that was just a a neat uh, little uh, factoid to tie that point together. All right. Uh, We've got no primaries next week for the first time in a little while. Thankfully, But uh, we will next week preview the ones coming up on June 5th for you. Daniel, Steve, thank you so much for talking us through what happened on Tuesday. Have a fantastic holiday weekend. Thanks. Okay, we will leave it there and transition to segment number two. Our next data point for this episode is 218. We talk about this number a lot. It's the important, it's the most important number in the House of Representatives because 218 is a majority of the 435. And it's an important number to House Speaker Paul Ryan, who seems to be on the verge of a revolt in the House. We have on the line Rachel Bade, who covers Congress for Politico, specifically House leadership. And she's on the phone with us today. Hey, Rachel, thanks for joining. Hey, happy to be here. All right. So so Paul Ryan is learning how being a lame duck speaker is a little different than uh, than his previous life, just being a regular speaker uh, for, for a few years. Some member of his caucus seemed to be ready to do an end run around his promises on immigration. Uh, and he's having difficulty on a whole number of other levels. But before we get to that, let's step back a bit. Ryan announced a couple of weeks ago that he would be leaving the House when this term ends. And since then, it, it just it's gotten increasingly more difficult to lead. What, what's been happening? What's been plaguing him? Yeah, I think some members of his uh, conference are probably saying, I told you so. There were a number of House Republicans who urged the Speaker not to announce that he was retiring 
um, because they were afraid of this, that he would be a lame duck and he would lose a lot of his sway and um, that they would have problems on their hands between now and Election Day. And I think that that's exactly what we're seeing. Um, Basically, to start, it sort of really started uh, exploding a couple of days ago when uh, the farm bill sank on the House floor. This is a giant agriculture bill that lawmakers pass usually on a bipartisan basis every couple of years. Well, Ryan decided he was going to make this a partisan bill with um, work requirements for food stamp beneficiaries. But in order to do that, he had to rely on his own members, Republicans, to pass this. And it ended up blowing up on the floor. A lot of coverage was given to conservatives who ended up bucking uh, Speaker Ryan and voting against it because they were upset about some other unrelated things on immigration. But the reality is half of the Republicans that voted to take this bill down were actually moderates who are very close with leadership. And they just he, he couldn't twist their arms to get them to vote for it, even though I was told he personally worked them over. Wow. Um, and obviously this comes uh, this comes as these another group of moderates are trying to force bipartisan votes on the House floor to shield dreamers from deportation, which a lot of the conservatives hate. And so leadership and the conservatives are trying to get them to stop. But just one really interesting anecdote that sort of illustrates sort of him losing his way, I think, um, there was a there was a closed door meeting last week where re- the Republican Steering Committee, which is a group of senior lawmakers that are allied with leadership, um, and it's run by the Speaker, which has five votes, uh, and basically they vote in people for committees, either chairman or people who are on various committees. There was a vacancy on the Powerful Ways and Means Committee, and the Speaker came out for one member and said, guys, I think we should vote for, it was Mark Walker, uh, who is a conservative, I, I think he should be on this tax panel. Usually people heed that in the room and they would vote for that, that person the Speaker wants. Well, guess what? His own steering committee went against him and voted for somebody else. Uh, and people sort of looked at this as another example of Ryan losing his juice. Wow, that's really interesting. So let me ask you a question. Given all that, uh, do the members of Congress you're talking to think there's any chance that Ryan could change up his plans and end up leaving earlier? There's obviously some who hope. Um, <laughs> I would say it's a small, it's a very small fraction of the conference. I would say most Republicans, you corner them in the hall up here, um, they'll tell you they want Ryan to stay. There is a fear up here that if he were to step aside now, that there would be a really contentious leadership election. Look, the members drafted me into this job because of who I am and what I stand for. Uh, I think members very much agree that what we should be doing is completing our agenda and our work. Look at what we're doing just this week. Right to try, going into law. Dodd-Frank reform, going into law. On the way to going into law, rebuilding our military and prison reform. That's four things just this week. So our members realize what we want to do is act on our agenda, improve people's lives, and having a divisive leadership election at this time would prevent us from doing that. Obviously, his number two, Kevin McCarthy, the majority leader, has tried to be speaker before and was not able to get the 218 votes he needed uh, to to basically claim that position. And there's a sense that he might try and there would be a bunch of contentious back and forth with him trying to whip votes and there would be a leadership vacuum. And who wants that in the middle of a really tough midterm election when you know Republicans could potentially lose their majority? That being said, we are seeing some people agitate, right? There are people who are close with McCarthy who think McCarthy can do it and they want him in now not later. They want him in now, and they think that by waiting until Ryan 
leaves at the end of the year, um, that McCarthy might not have a, a very good shot by then to actually claim the speakership should they keep the House. All the while, uh, the White House is starting to agitate, it sounds like, as well. I spoke to somebody over there earlier this week who said they were under the impression when Ryan retired that this was not a sustainable position. There is a concern that he is not going to be able to get certain things done, including a um, a budget cut package that Trump really wants to pass in the next couple of weeks. Ryan has sort of not taken a huge interest in it. They want it to move now. Um, they're frustrated and they're taking it out on the speaker. And so some of them have actually talked about, should Ryan hang around? Um, is it a good idea? However, these same people have assured me that they are not trying to move against him and that they're <laughs> going to leave it up to the House to decide. Uh-huh. Gotcha. All right, so let's let's drill down now on one. You know, this is kind of the the background to to one of the really big stories that's been developing over the last week or two uh, on immigration. And and you mentioned this uh, a couple of minutes ago, and I want to drill down on it a little bit. And uh, we're we're tempting the like Thursday nerdcast taping curse here because this is such a fast moving <laughs> issue, um, but. Right. Immigration is such a divisive issue in Congress overall, but especially because it's divisive among Republicans. And against the backdrop of these questions about Ryan's leadership, Ryan has been unable to to keep the immigration issue at bay thanks to something called a discharge petition. Um, and this is going to get wonky, but can you can you tell us first of all what that is, and then what the issue at stake with this particular discharge petition is? Yeah, so a discharge petition is a very um, rarely used legislative tool that allows the majority of the House to force a vote on the House floor, basically circumventing the speaker, the majority leader, the majority whip. The, the leadership team usually decides what gets a vote on the floor and what does not. But a discharge petition, if lawmakers get 218 people together to sign it, they can actually bring up the bills that they want to bring up. And what we're seeing right now is this is happening with immigration. There's a group of moderates from swing districts, um, Hispanic-heavy districts, who want an answer for DREAMers, and they don't want to sit on their hands and, you know, just wait until the Supreme Court decides on this, which could be, you know, nine months from now, uh, maybe longer. Uh, they want to give certainty to these DREAMers uh, who came here as young kids. This is codifying in law what what President Obama did by executive action a few years ago, right? Shielding right. Uh, young people who uh, were brought here as minors, uh, undocumented immigrants, and, and giving That's them right. uh, per- permanent residence. Uh, right. That's exactly right. They want they want to they want to codify DACA, Obama's DACA. Correct. Um, so they have there's this group of moderate Republicans has joined with Democrats, and they're very close to the 218 they are going to need to force the issue. And people uh, in both leadership circles, conservative circles who oppose this, and the moderate circles have told me it's a matter of time before they get it, and that means they're going to force the issue on the floor. Now this is problematic because. Paul Ryan made a promise when he became speaker that he would never put an immigration bill on the floor that does not inc- does not get the support of the majority of the majority, as in a majority of Republicans. And technically, this is out of Ryan's hands, right? He can't stop them. He's been trying to persuade them one-on-one. He gave this uh, call to unity, I think, just a couple of days ago in a closed-door meeting. Well, right after that, uh, from my understanding, somebody came right up to him and said, 
I'm adding my name to the discharge petition. So it didn't really work. Um, yeah, she was, again, you know, him, him losing his sway on this. So conservatives are warning the speaker um, that they're going to hold leadership accountable if they don't stop this. And so some of them have suggested hardline tactics like taking away NRCC financial help for these moderates. Obviously, these mods are in swing districts. They need the money. If they lose these mods, then they lose the majority. So that's a pretty hardline tactic. Um, but right now, we're in the situation where Ryan is trying to stop those last Republicans from signing on with the Democrats to force bipartisan immigration votes to to help dreamers. Um, and we just we're not I, I am very skeptical that he's going to be able to reach a deal between the moderates and the conservatives who, number one, are opposed to a pathway of citizenship for these dreamers. And that's really the key issue right now that is sort of um, kept the moderate Republicans and the conservatives from coming to a deal on this. So I don't think there's going to be a deal to stop the discharge petition. The speaker's really trying right now. I believe there's a meeting happening right now. Um, and I, but I, I really, they've been trying to do this for six months, come up with a Republican bill that moderates and conservatives can support. And they've been unable to do that. Um, so I'm very skeptical they'll be able to stop it. And I think we're going to see a showdown on the floor in June. Wow, that is incredibly interesting. And, you know, I, maybe it's all I, I'm actually it probably is all tied up in Ryan becoming a lame duck. But it seems like it's the the worst, uh, you know, from from his tactical perspective. It seems like the a, a confluence of that, but also moderates uh, in the House Republican conference recognizing that they can wield just as much power as conservatives if they adopt the hardline tactics that conservatives have used for so long, right, of withholding votes on uh, bills, or in this case, uh, forcing a vote, uh, potentially, on an immigration bill. It's really interesting, because usually the mods, uh, moderates, I keep calling them the mods, um, (laughs) the the moderate Republicans, the the centrist Republicans, these are the allies of leadership. And usually whenever a tough bill is coming to the floor, leadership is always pretty certain they can get these guys. Like, they have good relationships with them. Um, They work well together, usually. Um, but now think this group is just frustrated and yes, you're right. They're taking a page of the freedom caucus book and forcing the issue. It was funny because, um, I ran into Jim Jordan right after this, who is the leader of the house freedom caucus. One of the first founders who sort of perfected, uh, this thing that house conservatives do where they withhold their votes until they get what they want. He's really, um, the, the, the driver behind that idea that we've seen in the house over the past couple of years, I ran into him in the hallway after the moderates filed this part discharge petition. And he, I was like, what do you think of this? He goes, you know, well, I don't like it, but you know, I can't say I wouldn't do the same darn thing if I was them, uh, or almost like an admiration that was at first. Now we're, he's seeing that it's actually going to work and he's afraid that something bipartisan is going to pass. And he's really worried and he's trying to stop it. But to go back to Ryan on this, I think that one sort of interesting thing to keep in mind is that the speaker himself, while he's trying to stop this, um, because obviously there is a fear conservatives might come after him if this happens on the floor in June, he actually has been one of the most, um, the strongest supporters of doing a bipartisan DACA deal in leadership. And from my understanding, a couple of weeks ago, when the moderates filed this discharge petition, Uh, Speaker Ryan and Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy went over to the White House and had a talk with Trump. And the speaker actually made a pitch to the president and said, okay, this is happening. They're forcing my hand. 
what are the chances you would want to pick up on talks? I mean, obviously, immigration talks have stalled. Um, nobody's really touched them since the government shut down earlier this year. But Ryan actually, had, from what I understand from sources close to him, actually wants a bipartisan solution. And he would rather the president embrace something now and get it done while he's still in office because he wants this issue to be taken care of. He wants certainty for dreamers. He wants to beef up border security. If it was up to him, the president would embrace something and he would move it along. Well, the president in that meeting apparently said, meh, I'm not interested. <laughs> this is your problem, um, which is it just it's interesting because Trump himself has said he wants a bipartisan deal, too. So Ryan is in this pickle, you know, sort of torn where his heartstrings are done or his heartstrings like pull for these dreamers. But he's also trying to do what his conference wants. And at some point, this stuff is going to come to a head, right? I mean, I'm just, it's really interesting to watch him because a lot of people think, oh, maybe at some point he's going to go out on a limb and really push for a bipartisan deal. Well, I don't think he's going to do that until Trump actually embraces one. But Trump is really resistant to embracing one. Um, so he's in this pickle and um, it'll just be interesting to see where it ends up in the next couple of weeks. All right. Well, we'll we'll let you uh, get back to, to covering all the, the twists and turns on this story right now. Rachel, thanks so much for taking the time this morning to join us. Happy to do it. All right. Well, that was really interesting. A lot to think about uh, this week, but also as, as we watch this moving forward. As promised, we're going to turn things over briefly to one Nerdcast superfan. We have Signa Dom Shanks of Saskatoon, which is in Saskatchewan, for those of you who are not steeped in Canadian geography, and she is going to help us out with the credits this week. Nerdcast is produced by Michaela Rodriguez, with production help from Adrian Hurst. Dave Shaw is the executive producer, and their illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like Nerdcast and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, rate the show and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Thank you, Signa. Listeners, we found Signa because she emailed in to say she was a fan. If you are a fan of the Nerdcast who wants to read the credits, let us know. Shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. Thank you so much for listening. We will talk to you again next week. <laughs>